Welcome to the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome uh, to a Shorenstein Brown Bag Luncheon. I'm Richard Parker. I'm a senior fellow here at the Shorenstein Center. And our guest today is David Rode, who I'm proud to say is a former Shorenstein Fellow, who I'm delighted to see back with us again today. Uh, David's one of the most distinguished journalists of his generation. He's won not one, but two Pulitzer Prizes, the first for his work and coverage of the Srebrenica massacre in uh, the Balkans, uh, and then a second uh, Pulitzer Prize for his work on uh, Afghanistan and uh, uh, Iraq. Uh, he started his career at the Christian Science Monitor and uh, currently writes for the New York Times. Uh, he tells me that he has been traveling with uh, Secretary Kerry now for the last few months while working on a piece for the Atlantic. So with some luck, we can coax him into some of the headlines or at least some of the section lines that will define this piece before publication. It's also a, a pregnant moment for this talk because President Obama spoke this morning at the UN General Assembly on uh, a new American policy toward the Middle East, and David has been following that carefully this morning and so can bring some of that to the table. So, David, it's a delight to have you, Thank you. back in town. Thank you. Um, it's great to be here. I was a fellow, I don't know how many years ago. It's good to see you again. Um, and I just will talk briefly, but really want to take your questions. And one update, I'm, I'm actually now, because Lee Aiken here was one of my editors, I'm actually a columnist now for Reuters. Mm. Um, and... Uh, um, trying to come up with pithy 800-word um, columns to talk about solving these incredibly complex um, problems. Um, the talk is sort of a combination of um, um, the, a book I published this spring, um, which is an example of uh, the dangers for, I guess, all authors here of uh, publishing these days. So this book, I, I stopped the writing in, uh, I think, September, 2012, and this book is not going to win a Pulitzer Prize. Um, at that point, uh, the Taksim Square protests had not yet happened in Turkey, so I was talking about, you know, uh, Prime Minister Erdogan in Turkey being a flawed uh, leader, but that we should sort of give him more time and he would maybe revert to pro-democratic practices. There's also a chapter on Egypt uh, about President Morsi, who obviously is no longer President Morsi. Um, Bill Clinton was actually giving an interview last night um, on the News Hour, and uh, uh, it reminded me of this time last year, the highlighted guest um, at the UN General Assembly, and particularly at the Clinton Global Initiative, was Mohamed Morsi, and how quickly things changed. So the book quickly became dated, and it's, uh, um, it, it's an amazingly fast-moving situation in the Middle East. And then I spent the last three months traveling with John Kerry as he tried to revive the Israeli-Palestinian um, peace process, and we'll talk about him primarily. Um, Richard's right in terms of this morning. I don't. Did many of you see the speech or heard about Obama's speech this morning? He sort of talked about more of a. And correct me if I'm wrong, but he sort of talked about you know having more of a diplomatic effort. Um, there were some signals of an openness with Iran. Kerry and uh, the Iranian foreign minister are going to be meeting later this week. What interested me in the sort of broader context of this book and this story is. What should the United States' role be in the Middle East 
uh, if any. Um, outside of the Kennedy School, I would guess 80% of Americans want absolutely nothing to do with the Middle East, want out, don't know why we have any interest there or what we're doing in that region. Um, maybe this is a bit obscure, but what, what surprised me or one part of the speech that um, surprised me was um, um, I did an interview over at WGBH this morning. I don't usually sit around and take notes about every word the president says. <laughs> but um, he said that the U.S. has four priorities in the Middle East, four strategic goals that it, it will uh, act to uh, enforce, so to speak. He said, number one, protect allies, which, you know, he's speaking about Israel and other nations. Number two, ensure the free flow of energy. Um, he said that the world economy depends on uh, Middle Eastern oil, uh, even though we're more energy independent in the United States, which I think is true. Uh, three was dismantle terrorist networks, which might have more support inside the United States. And four, we will not tolerate the development of weapons of mass destruction. Um, I thought it was good that he actually talked about this, and he's, you know, the problem for him is that he's changing tact after. Uh, years of saying we're going to pivot to Asia, and he's the president that's going to get us out of the Middle East. He's now trying to make a case about why American engagement um, is needed in the U.S. Um, it was a long speech, and he was sort of trying to thread a needle. He sounded defensive at times about the U.S. Um, we're accused of not doing uh, enough in the region to, you know, stop Syria and other things. But then he said, whenever we do act, we're we're seen as meddling. Um, but he. And again, this is this Obama dance and trying to be different than George W. Bush. And, and again, what is America's role in the world? Um, and he did say, by the way, that he believes the United States is an exceptional nat nation. But he said, the danger for the world is that the United States, after a decade of war, rightly concerned about issues back home and aware of the hostility that our engagement in the region has endangered throughout the Muslim world, may disengage, creating a vacuum of leadership that no other nation is ready to fill. And... Um, and then he said, I believe that would be a mistake. So it's, to me, this sort of confusing signals and flux um, from the Obama administration about what is the U.S. role and how they're going to achieve it. Um, have, have you covered John Kerry or spent much time with him, any of you? Mm -hmm. This is probably a reporting trip for me. I'm trying to get more details about him. Um, he's sort of a, at best, a Jekyll and Hyde. This is all recorded, I guess. Um, <laughs> He, he, um, or Laurel and Hardy. Laurel and Hardy, yeah. See, this, this actually, um, fits into one of my themes. I mean, when I started on this story, I was sort of pitching it to editors in February, March. Um, at that point, people were really completely uninterested in John Kerry. Um, when, you know, when he succeeded Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State, Washington sort of responded with a collective yawn. Um, if you remember, there was all this sort of sweeping coverage of, of Clinton's goodbye speech in the lobby of the State Department. Um, Kerry appeared there the following Monday and made some joke about, you know, uh, whether or not the building could actually be run by a man, because for the last eight years, women have run the Secretary of State, the sorry, Department of State, and then he pushed it too far, and this is one thing about Kerry, is he's very awkward, actually. Yeah, right. He's arrogant and awkward, and he just sort of tries too hard. So he, then he made, so everyone laughed about uh, a man running the State Department, and then he said something like, I've got some big heels to fill. And it was just oh, oh, oh. This is what we call a goof aloof. Right? <laughs> we'll get into gaff diplomacy here in Syria. Um, anyway, he gave his first foreign policy speech. I'm trying to sell this idea to my editors at Reuters and at The Atlantic. Uh, it gets 500 words in the Washington Post, and the New York Times writes nothing about it. Um, a joke uh, in the press corps in Washington is that 28 years in the U.S. Senate 
ruined John Kerry's ability to speak English, um, <laughs> that too many hours in the Senate, you know, have left him speaking Senate speak. Uh, the first trip I went uh, with him was to Moscow. Uh, it was um, fascinating because when we arrived, um, Kerry went to the Kremlin and he laid a wreath at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And then Vladimir Putin spent uh, the next three hours making John Kerry wait to see him. Mm-hmm. Kerry sort of went and walked in a circle around Red Square. He kind of was doing this exaggerated thing, and he's very tall, he's 6'4", pointing at buildings and asking questions about architecture. Mm-hmm. And we didn't quite know what was going on. And then finally he went in the Kremlin and waited again. Um, more time went by, and then he went back to his hotel. So finally he meets with um, Putin and then Lavrov. Um, Later that night, he holds a, ke- a press conference, um, and he at that press conference, and I checked it, it's in the official um, transcript, uh, Kerry uttered a 95-word sentence oh, <laughs> about oh, something about the Tomb of the Unknown Soldiers and peace and Syria and Obama and, uh, and Putin. But anyway, he came out of that with the talk of the <clears throat> Geneva uh, Two conference happening, which we all know never really um, happened. Um, He's sort of, as I said, uh, clumsy. Um, Charlie Sennett, the editor uh, Mm -hmm. and founder, one of the founders of Global Post and a longtime Boston uh, Globe reporter, told me recently that he, Kerry, can't dance. Um, And and that uh, in his defense, and this is the sort of good side of John Kerry, his aide said that he's gotten much more serious since he realized he's not going to be the President of the United States, that he actually... um, Uh, really digs into issues. Um, he, he was uh, charged with President Obama to come up with some kind of climate change legislation, um, and he actually really impressed. There was a former aide to um, Senator Kennedy. Those, those offices had huge rivalries, the Kennedy staff versus the Kerry staff. And this aide to Senator Kennedy said that um, Senator Kennedy's death, um, along with the presidential thing, also sort of liberated Kerry. He was no longer in Kennedy's shadow and that uh, the work that he did on this climate change legislation was unbelievable. There's a mm-hmm. tremendous doggedness to John Kerry, maybe driven by ego, but the guy works tirelessly. He's 69 years old and has hip replacement surgery, but he just goes and goes and goes. Um, and, and, and plays ice hockey. It's and plays ice hockey. Yeah. He, um, he broke his nose uh, playing ice hockey with friends um, a couple years ago. Apparently there's footage of Obama meeting him at the – at the State of the Union address that year and telling him to stop playing hockey. Because it's John Kerry, though, the, the pickup hockey game was played at his vacation house in Ketchum, Idaho, right. one of the five residences I think they have. But um, So watching him in action, um, it was fascinating because he's sort of a combination of, and, th- and again, this is the big, broad debate about the U.S.'s role in the world post-Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, He's sort of the young Kennedy idealist who believes that the U.S. can be a force for good, but then he clearly saw in Vietnam how badly American interventions can go. Um, one of his aides said that, that Kerry, the best way to sort of talk about Kerry's philosophy of this is that if there's an opportunity for a very narrow and limited use of American military force to somehow save lives um, in a inter- humanitarian intervention, um, it should be done so as long as it doesn't risk large number of large numbers of American troops. Um, that would may seem pretty obnoxious to some non-Americans, but that is his view. And you know, we can talk more about the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. That was just hours and hours and hours of meetings. In his first uh, five months in office, he visited uh, Israel and the West Bank more than Hillary Clinton did in her entire term. 
I think in the first four months he did more than she did in her, in her four years. Um, and that was just dogged personal diplomacy, and I can talk about that more. But the more interesting thing is the way he emerged as the, clearly the administration's leading hawk on Syria. And whether you agreed with the strikes or not, um, many people felt that the, uh, the speech he gave um, on the, uh, uh, calling the gas attack a moral obscenity was probably the strongest address or, or one of the strongest addresses of his career. Um, that was on uh, Thursday or Friday. The following Saturday, the president announces he's going to go to Congress. And um, what, what he is is an activist secretary of state in a very cautious and controlling White House. Um, the White House read every word of that speech. The phrase moral obscenity, you know, was um, approved by the White House. Um, he's not doing anything without the White House's control. But back to the awkward carry, after giving that speech, he goes too far in the congressional hearings, as you've all heard about. If you remember, in the first day of hearings, he, he mentions the hypothetical of boots on the ground in Syria and then spends the next three hours trying to pull it back and say, I didn't really mean that. Uh, that's not true. Um, he falsely said in, in a testimony the next day to the House that only 15 to 25 percent of Syrian rebels were jihadists. That may have been the Senate, actually. And that's a, a really low estimate. It's at least half were jihadists. And then he more famously in a press conference during a trip said that the strikes would be incredibly small, um, which led to all this mocking of him and the president. Um, and in, in terms of the gaffe diplomacy, this, this idea where in London he sort of offers this hypothetical, well, if, if uh, Assad will get rid of all of his chemical weapons within a week, you know, we won't take military action. And some of this has been reported, but my understanding is that it's true. That trip in May when I was with him and he waited for three hours to see Putin this idea of, of turning over the chemical weapons international control was talked about between Kerry and Lavrov. Um, Putin had mentioned it to Obama, I believe, in Mexico mm -hmm. at a meeting there and also, uh, again, in St. Petersburg. But the really strong sense I got from Kerry's aides is that they just simply didn't believe the Russians were serious. Um, <laughs> and so Kerry, he goes off script all the time, and that was Kerry going off script. And they were sort of shocked when Lavrov and Putin pounce on this chemical weapons deal um, and seem serious about it. Um, so it's partly gaff diplomacy, partly working hard at these issues, which is, um, you know, John Kerry. Um, many people criticize him that this, you know, Kennedy-era idea of the U.S., you know, doing good in the world is, is frankly antiquated and doesn't fit the world today, a multipolar world. Um, people on the left criticize him that he's gone against his, anti, his Vietnam War activism, um, you know, and, and others, uh, you know, such as Carl uh, Rove, who famously had, you know, the windsurfing ad where he was a flip-flopper. Uh, Rand Paul, I guess the new Carl Rove on Meet the Press, said that Kerry's just wrong. He's got bad judgment. He fought in Vietnam and then protested against that war. Uh, he supported the 2003 invasion of Iraq and then opposed it. And then he actually met with Bashar al-Assad in 2009, trying to normalize relations with Syria. And then he ended up comparing uh, Assad to Adolf Hitler in, in these speeches about the sarin gas attacks. Um, Rand Paul said on Meet the Press, I would ask John Kerry, how can you ask a man to be the first one to die from a mistake, a play on his old Senate testimony during the Vietnam War? Um, just lastly on Kerry, um, this decision of Obama to go to Congress, experts have told me, does create a real issue for Kerry. Um, in a sense, um, after Kerry gives this incredibly strong moral obscenity speech, the president cut his legs out from underneath him. 
that, you know, Kerry was clearly leaning way out over his skis, as they say, clearly pushing military strikes. And for the rest of Kerry's term um, and, and the Obama administration in general, if Kerry sits down with a world leader, they're going to wonder, is this guy really speaking for President Obama? And is the U.S. really committed to using force? Um, Kerry, I'm sorry, Obama tried to say that over and over again today, that, you know, with these four objectives that I outlined earlier, the U.S. will use force. And he definitely defended, he said, there are times when multilateral force should be used to prevent another Rwanda or another Srebrenica. But it was, again, this kind of uh, diplomacy first uh, military force um, as a last resort. Um, and just lastly on Kerry, what I, again, he's a deeply flawed person, but what, I, what struck me and what interests me the most is that at 69, he's got what few people um, have in Washington. Um, he's got no dreams of higher office, so he's got a, a huge willingness to take risks. And I give him credit for it. People sort of laughed at him when he started on this Israeli-Palestinian peace process. And he really risked, you know, failing utterly on the world stage. But he just doesn't care. And, you know, in interviews and other things with him, it's clear that he feels like um, it's a job he's always wanted. He feels that U.S. diplomacy can make a difference in the world and, um, and that the U.S. should keep trying to make things better somehow in the Middle East. How you do that is a huge question. Um, that's sort of it for me on John Kerry. I can talk more about Obama's speech or how all this might be seen in the region as so that's, well. That's a thank you. Thank, thank you, David. I mean, it's a great <clears throat> opening. And it's, I mean, John is somebody I've known for a long time. I actually worked on the Jim Shannon campaign against John when they first ran so you, so you don't like him? No, no, I just disagreed with him. I thought <laughs> Shannon in that context was a better candidate. I came to admire him enormously because of the work he did on Iran-Contra mm -hmm. in the middle of uh, the Reagan years. And for those of you who don't know it, John Kerry and his staff were really the driving forces that broke open the Iran-Contra fiasco in the middle of, the, of uh, that. And I think that's a direct legacy of his Vietnam War experience and his sense of the misuse of American foreign policy. Uh, what I'd like you to do is do two things, one of which is to turn back on this idea of John Kerry and then talk about some of the Middle Eastern issues that Kerry, Obama, and their successors are going to have to face because they aren't going to be resolved in the Obama administration. <clears throat> so the first is I found myself uh, talking to a number of people who are not part of sort of the boss wash corridor who don't particularly relate at all to whether or not the president and the secretary of state have been flip-floppers or not. They're just relieved that we haven't gotten ourselves into what looks like a war in yet another country and may have gotten us out of, may have gotten these gases out. Should Washington and the press corps and the talking classes be as preoccupied about the flip-flop accusation if, in fact, this turns out to be the case, that, in fact, we are going to get this, the, the sarin gas out of the hands of the Syrians? That's question number one. The second, then, is... What are the elements of a forward-looking American policy in the region? We're not going to stop being a global power. We are not going to be the sole, uh, we're not going to be the world's largest economy for much longer. This whole deal with Putin is about others wanting to share the, the leadership. And then what are the discrete, I mean, we've got a huge problem nested in Egypt right now. I mean, Iran is sort of the immediate next one, but Egypt is like this vast time bomb of 85 million people that's going to go off. What, and, and we've locked ourselves in with the Saudis and with con, uh, a very conservative government in Israel. We may, we may have lucked into an opening with Iran. What's, what should our sort of guiding principles be here? I mean, 
you know, $100 barrel oil and the security of Israel, those have been security pillars for 50 years. I mean, what's the terrorist stuff that goes on? But what about the democratization of the Middle East? What about the rights of the citizens of the Middle East? Aren't those ideally things that you'd want to be part of the <coughs> foreign policy? He, um, no, no, what he's, the... not what he said. <laughs> Go but, okay, no, no, ahead. I agree. But he's... This was the confusing thing to me about the speech today. Um, and let me just go to this. So this is on Egypt um, in terms of these democratic ideals. Yeah, and yeah. going with your last question first. Sure. Um, he talked about Egypt. He said, the United States will at times work with governments that do not meet the highest international expectations, i.e., a military government that kills a 1,000 protesters. Right but governments who work with us on our core interests. So it was this sort of muddled speech, this problem yet again where are we sort of, or maybe he's being pragmatic to defend him, but if you step back, it's are we really supporting democracy or are we going to support our core interests and look the other way? And, and so there was, you know, fresh this morning, there was no, no movement on that stuff. On the, the flip-flop issue, I, I think that we... I think there is too much of a focus on the flip-flop issue and the strength of the presidency, and what everybody mm -hmm. missed was how totally opposed to another military intervention this, this country is. Yeah, the domestic cost. There was absolutely no support for it at all. Um, there were theories about um, uh, why Obama – I was talking with this. I don't know if many of you know Jonathan Moore, who's an associate here and is one of my closest friends and, and just a national treasure about all this. But I think the White House – I'm not – some people think that Obama went to Congress because he didn't want to carry out the strike, and it was some smart Machiavellian strategy. Um, I think he was looking for political cover, that if he could – he didn't really want to do it, and he seemed like he was on a limb, and so and, – and I so that's why I think he did it. And I think they were surprised at how, um, how hard it was to get support for that vote. One very interesting thing in terms of Israel and AIPAC and its sort of legendary influence in Washington, AIPAC – and the Israeli government, at first they were quiet about it, but then they were very open about it. AIPAC lobbied for people in Congress to vote for strikes against Syria. It didn't move any votes. Even in the Republican right, where there's, you know, sort of a competition to show how, how pro-Israel they can be, you know, AIPAC was unable to move votes on Syria. That's, that's remarkable. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that, so, just back to my broader point about are we going to walk away from the region or not? You know, protect allies and ensure the free flow of energy. That's the same thing we've talked about for 50 years. And um, the administration needs a better case about, I guess, why we have to do that. And what do we do? I mean, I'm not, I will try to answer that <laughs> later question. Because I remember I was at dinner at a friend's house, and uh, a guy who's not in foreign policy uh, this weekend I said something like, well, no one cares about Syria. And he said, no, I don't think that's true. I just think that Americans don't think there's anything they can do that will make it any better. That Iraq and Afghanistan just makes it feel like all of our tactics will fail. Um, and and I, if anybody has any ideas, you're welcome to share them. But that's, um, uh, you know, it's, it's – uh, Anyway, it's all, it's a very, it's a very, uh, what did Obama say this morning? We live in an amazing time. <laughs> oh, fooey. <laughs> okay, students get to provide the first solution or ask the first question, whichever they prefer. Isn't, there should be like Kennedy School papers on. Yeah, there are. You're about, the you're about to be given them so that that'll be, you know, and they'll have their business cards too. So who wants to ask the first question? 
Oh, come on. The Middle East is such a simple. Uh, I actually worked in John Kerry's press office. Um, oh, no. I, no it's okay. <laughs> I find him lovably unapproachable. So. Uh oh. <laughs> Wait, I'm adding that to the final. Unlike, pres <laughs> unlike President Clinton, right? Yes. Um, and I think that we definitely saw what you were talking about, as, especially after um, Ted Kennedy's death, how he really plug huh. in and didn't feel. Um, I mean, it could really dig into what issues he wanted. When did you work for him? 2011. Mm hmm. I only worked there briefly. I'll have to run a Senate race up here. But um, he definitely picked issues that, you know, had no flash at all. Because um, he went to Sudan also. Um, he did all these little um, diplomatic missions that weren't going to get him votes in Right, right. And so it was a little of that. But, I mean, as far as domestic issues, he was doing um, the Build Act and Law of the Sea. And we didn't know what to write about that. <laughs> um, so do you think that the difference with this high-risk um, you know, I wouldn't call high risk behavior, but the risk that he's taking is just the nature of the game. Because either way, he wasn't looking at, at another <coughs> office. He was down on the hill, and he's done now. No, I've been thinking about the title and whether it's um. I mean, Mission Impossible is one title we've worked with, but it's high risk. I also, I, and maybe he'll be insulted, but it's sort of John Kerry's high wire act hmm. that he's you know trying all these things. Um, it's not. I don't think it's necessarily um, you know in, inherent in the office, and I'm not. Meaning this is a is too strong a criticism, but you know there's there was a sense among State Department officials they were happy to have um, Kerry come in and happy to have a Secretary of State who did not have aspirations for higher office after Secretary Clinton, because there was a sense that she stayed away from you know there were special representatives, but you know the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and Afghanistan and Pakistan, which were sort of seen as you know politically losers. You're really unlikely to, to fail. And I had a, 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 an American diplomat I won't name who's worked a lot on Syria say that Kerry's energy level on Syria was a real breath of fresh air. Um, he's been very aggressive about trying to get the Syrian opposition to kind of unite, uh, be more inclusive, and just, you know, present a much better case um, to the U.S. and stuff like that. But I'm definitely going to use the phrase, phrase love, lovably unapproachable. With an unnamed source, yeah. Right. <laughs> Next to this is the quietest Kennedy School. <laughs> Are you all Kennedy School students? You've <laughs> yes. All right. Um, so why take on Israel-Palestine? What is it in that Kerry sees in this? Does he see it that he could actually succeed at this, especially when there's so much else going on in the region right now? He, um, uh, he claims and he'll uh, – <laughs> he, you, you speak to him and he can be incredibly engaging and impassioned and, and it's, it's, you know, and he's amazing. And then he'll, you know, lapse into, as I said, senator, senator speak. So he starts saying, while I traveled the world for 30 years on different congressional delegations, you know, and he goes in this thing. But he says that wherever he went, people would talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He would go to China and Chinese leaders would talk about how important it was to resolve it. Um, you know, South America and all these places. Um, he has said this in speeches and I'm I'm pretty sure it's all public, but he um, he thinks that Israel's security right now is 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 a false. Uh, it's sort of not going to last. Mm -hmm. That the instability you know all around the region, Egypt and Syria, shows that it's facing real problems in the future. The demographic issues everyone talks about in Israel, uh, you know, is working against it, and that he really feels that. Um, let's just say his aides have said that uh, the future of a like democratic Israel is at stake here. That if there is no two-state agreement, you know, the idea of a democratic Israel is going to cease to exist. Um, and he also, I, I, as argued in public and, and private, that um, you know what comes after 
Abu Mazen in terms of the Palestinian leadership, mm-hmm. that you're just going to get a much more <coughs> radicalized um, Palestinians. And so he believes this. Um, he's worked tirelessly at it. Um, a cynical interpretation of the agreement on the talks is that uh, the Israelis did it because one of the things they required was it's, it's at least six months of negotiation. And that got them through the U.N. General Assembly and this Palestinian push for statehood. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one trip I was on with Kerry, uh, the Europeans announced they were going to stop funding um, any projects at all in the occupied territories. And one thing that does seem to bother uh, the Israeli government is, is the idea of a European-led effort to delegitimize Israel. Um, that they're not worried about American support, but there really is much more fairly or unfairly, you know, anti-Israel, um, you know, rhetoric in Europe, and that that's another thing that seems to be working against them. Um, Abu Mazen is uh, Mahmoud Abbas is pretty unpopular. Um, hasn't held an election because um, he's not clear how it would go. So he's eager, and he's. 81, I believe. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of his last chance as well. Anyway, most people think it's... I mean, people thought the talks would never revive, so he pulled that off, but they're even more skeptical about any kind of peace agreement. All right, one more student, and then I'm <laughs> turning it over to the talking classes. So, yes? Uh, so in light of, of Kiri's using gap or statement about the chemical weapons process in, in Syria, what do you, where do you think this impacts our either covert or overt abilities uh, to arm the Syrian rebels? How, where, where do we go from here with that operation now that we're sort of holding hands very lightly with, with Assad on very critical issues? The hawks in the administration believe that um, you are not going to um, get Assad or the Russians to the serious bargaining table to resolve the conflict unless you change the military balance on the ground. They talk about the peace settlement in Bosnia being the result of kinetic force, uh, NATO bombing. And then um, I covered the war in Bosnia, and this gets less headlines. There was a covert CIA effort that went on for years to arm the Croatian army and, to a lesser extent, the Bosnian Muslims. And um, in the, there, were NATO, there were NATO strikes in Bosnia in the summer of 95 before the Dayton peace talks started. But there was also this incredible offensive where the Croatian army took a huge amount of western Bosnia. They... they then they literally, Richard Holbrook ordered them to stop their advance right when it, it divided the territory 51-49% between Serbs and the, the Muslim Croat Federation. So that's what the Hawks in sort of carry, and well, let me just say, carry himself, will, uh, will say that, you know, until you change the military balance on the ground, until you change Assad's calculus, you know, you're not going to have um, a peace agreement. Um, most Americans scoff at that idea and think that you're just going to... So we are continuing to arm the rebels. CIA teams are training um, moderate Free Syrian Army rebels in Jordan, the first team of 50. It was all it was in the papers, went in about a month ago. I think that's continuing. And the idea is that you, you know, trust but verify and, you know, in terms of whether the chemical weapons thing is actually being carried out. And then, um, you know, you keep arming the FSA because I think the U.S. is also very afraid of all the jihadists that are there. And you probably all followed this, but it's gotten really the tensions between moderate Syrians, and I have not been into Syria, but was in Jordan and Turkey talking to refugees. Um, Syrians are very proud. They're very secular. Um, there's obviously a huge tension between the Sunnis and the Alawis, but they were. I, I covered Afghanistan. I remember when I somehow mentioned Afghanistan in some relation to <coughs> Syria, these very well educated, proud Syrians were like horrified. Don't you ever compare us to Afghanistan. <laughs> you know, we, we don't want a theocracy. 
So uh, um, I do think there are, you know, there's a moderate uh, rebel group that very much opposes jihadis as well as Assad, but they don't seem to have much power on the ground. All right, next question. Michael. Doesn't the current situation in uh, Syria indicate to you that we must have given up on the idea of regime change or we're just falling into that because we are, as you say, lightly holding hands, but we're negotiating at arm's length with this fellow and extending his time? And if we accidentally fell into that uh, uh, because of clumsy diplomacy, uh, or maybe a realization that he wasn't going anywhere, and maybe it wouldn't do us all that much good if he went anywhere anyway. I think you're right, and I think the, the change that weekend when the Russian deal was announced was that the U.S. policy went from Assad must go to Assad's chemical weapons must go. And it was never really overtly said, but that's what's happened. Um, today, Obama said again in the speech that, you know, it's he can't rule Syria, you can't slaughter your own people, blah, blah, blah. But I'm sure if they could have some gradual transition away from Assad, they would leap at that that kind of transition. And the French are talking about trying to get the Iranians to the table if the Iranians yes. do a pre-agreement that Assad will go. Is that Yes, and is so this tricky. is very much, uh, and Kerry mm -hmm. talked about talking to the Iranians for months, um, even mm -hmm. before uh, Rouhani's, well, maybe since Rouhani's election. But, um, yes, if, there, if you can have successful talks on the nuclear issue, absolutely the administration wants to engage Iran and Syria mm -hmm. as well. Um, and, and I think they should try. I mean, it would mm -hmm. be... Great if, if there could be the end of these horrific conflicts. Yes. Uh, this is a question specifically about Kerry himself. You mentioned uh, that he was an attractive candidate for the White House because he didn't have any more aspirations for higher office. But I actually am, I don't entirely understand why he was chosen. I know he was one of the very obvious names. I know he wanted it very badly. But why was he the best guy for the job, or is that just a naive way of looking at how they fill these positions? He, um, he has a long history with Obama. Um, he was uh, the first major Democrat. Well, he first let Obama speak at, uh, in the convention in Boston, right, in 2000. Mm -hmm. When Kerry ran himself for office, that was when mm -hmm. the obscure— Obama broke in. When Obama came in, that was the first speech. Um, Kerry endorsed Obama, uh, not Hillary, very early, and he was, you know, he was the former nominee, so he was the first major Democratic leader to embrace him there. I got Senator Kennedy. Um, and, and then the last thing, and, you know, it's all being, you don't have to read the story anyway. The, the funny, one funny thing that I found out was that the, the key thing, though, that Kerry did that formed this amazing uh, bond with Obama was that he did an incredibly good job of play acting a very tall, politician from Massachusetts with very good hair. Right. <laughs> John Kerry was Mitt Romney in debate prep during the 2012 campaign. And that gave him, you know, there was sort of anywhere from three to five days of, of three to five full working days with the president for each of the three debates. And apparently he did a great job. Um, he really got under Obama's skin. Um, Obama didn't blame him for Obama's first uh, uh, debate performance. But they really did bond in those two um, or those three uh, sessions working together, and they're sort of similar in that they're both kind of private people. Mm -hmm. They're not very warm and fuzzy in private, um, as you've heard about Obama as well. And they're kind of um, they can do the kind of glad-handing politician thing, but they'd much rather be, I guess, in a policy meeting or, you know, playing 
hockey and catching or something. Each of them has a core of about half a dozen people with whom they are That's true. very warm, but they don't trust outside that inner That's circle. Very true. That's what's characteristic, I think, of the two of them. Um, anyway, maybe he wanted Susan Rice, but that became <clears throat> kind of politically impossible. Yeah. And he'd worked hard. He did. He went to <coughs> Afghanistan and Karzai agreed to the runoff election. Um, he went to Pakistan after uh, the U.S. killed bin Laden and kind of, you know, so he had sort of been the good soldier and got the job. Yes. Given what you said, that uh, I, I think it's generally agreed that Obama kind of cut his legs off on the Saturday following Thursday. What role we now have in Syria and then even in the Palestinian-Israeli business? The um, the White House seems to like kind of to let him loose in these kind of impossible diplomatic things. He he slowed down since the Syria thing because he was doing a lot of testimony in the in the House. But the first six months, Kerry was traveling at a faster rate than Hillary Clinton or Condoleezza Rice. He was never in Washington. The guy, I mean, it's amazing the energy level he has. So I think they're, they know he's going to go off script. Um, that's just John Kerry's thing. I had an, uh, somebody who's worked in the White House and who works with Kerry now say that the White House ex, you know, accepts John Kerry's gaffes because they feel it's not – a Machiavellian effort by Kerry to somehow influence the policy debate. Mm -hmm. It's just Kerry being Kerry. Mm -hmm. um, if you remember when he was he was in Pakistan, and in one afternoon he had two major diplomatic incidents. First, he said in an interview with Pakistani TV that the Egyptian army was restoring democracy in Egypt, which the White House was walking back within minutes. And then he said that President Obama had a timeline for when we were going to end drone strikes. Um, in Pakistan. That was like in the next interview with the next TV station. And um, so they, it's a strange, Kerry's taking all the risk. If he fails in Israel-Palestine, it really doesn't hurt Obama. So Kerry now is going to meet with uh, Foreign Minister Zarif from Iran later this week in New York. And again, let Kerry do it. Let Kerry go to Geneva and fail to get an agreement with Lavrov. It actually kind of helps the White House to have someone who's just so driven and so willing to take risks to kind of work out the finer details of these agreements. Yes. What do you hear about the Israel-Palestine talks, and um, what do you think might be the best scenario for the next three to six months and how it's going? I've, I mean, there's complaints already from the um, Palestinians that it's not a serious negotiation. The Israelis have complained as well. I don't think we're going to know anything until the very end. It'll all be, you know, kind of brinksmanship until then. Um, and uh, the, the real question to me is whether there's a domestic – is there domestic political pressure inside Israel for Netanyahu to make a major compromise on settlements? Um, and he, he, he compromised – this has been reported um, – uh, he – the it was 104 prisoners, I believe, that were the was the Palestinians had three demands: um, settlement freeze, uh, talks based on the 67 borders, and a release of 104 prisoners. I don't know for a fact. There's been reporting about some kind of document that Kerry signed about the talks being based on the 67 borders. Kerry's people have denied that. There was no movement by the Israelis on the settlement freeze. Um, and I was on the very last trip when we were in Amman, and it looked like Kerry was going to fail. And he's amazing because he just kept calling up Netanyahu, mm -hmm. uh, making another trip, you know, flying. The, the Jordanian government was giving him helicopters to fly from Amman into Ramallah and meet um, with the Palestinians. And in the end, um, Bibi gave on the prisoners. And I think they, 
offered some smaller number than 104. The Palestinians still said no, and then finally they agreed to the 104 pre-Oslo prisoners being released. But again, that makes sense for Bibi in a tactical sense, and Bibi's a great tactician. <laughs> Apparently, in all these private sessions, Kerry's tried to say, this is your moment, uh, you know, Prime Minister, to be a historic leader in Israel and make a historic agreement. Um, and, you know, I don't know Netanyahu that well, but some people are sort of doubt whether he'll do that or not. That, that there Again, there isn't a big push um, politically in Israel to make major concessions at but this he point. He does think of himself as an historic leader and that this is an historic moment, but he's taking Israel in a different historic direction, I think, is the way to yes. think about that. Yeah. Um, I think you're right about sort of the lesson of Iraq and the <clears throat> use of military power. I mean, it's hard to imagine kind of how you can muster public support for any major intervention in the Middle East uh, in the current window, probably including a nuclear threat uh, of Iran. I think An attack on the U.S. would do it, Tom, but... No, no, but I mean, it's realistically. But my question is how you think that might affect diplomacy, because a lot of our diplomacy in the region uh, has depended on the credibility of military threat kind of hanging over to the diplomatic mission, and you take that away, um, to what degree do you think that's going to affect some of what we do in that, in that area? Um, I think it is a vital tool. I think that Putin really didn't want American strikes. I mean, we, we kind of set out tomahawks aren't going to make any difference in all this stuff, but I think Putin and Assad were very afraid at how expensive the strikes would be and that, and, and that they were maybe afraid that if, they, if, if Assad lost his air force, he would have real trouble militarily. Um, so I thought that the strikes could have had a military impact depending on how big they were. But I, there is a view of Obama as kind of vacillating and all this stuff. In terms of, you know, and this gets into my very dated book. Um, <laughs> so pre-Egypt, um, I mean, my frustration with American kind of views of the Middle East or foreign policy post-Iraq and Afghanistan is it's sort of, okay, are we going to have a massive ground invasion with 100,000 troops? Or are we going to do absolutely nothing? And um, I think that there's diplomacy. Um, there was efforts to try. I think the, the huge, the huge issue in the Middle East is economics. Sixty percent of the population of the Middle East is under the age of 30. And if you think there's unrest now, um, imagine if the jobless rates continue to grow. I don't care who's running Egypt. Um, 85 million people. You know, 60% of them under the age of 30. You've got to create growing economies across the region. Same thing in, you know, the West Bank. Um, Jordan, um, again, I was there with, with a, uh, there's sort of, the Arab Spring kind of stalled in Jordan, but there's all this sort of continuing tensions there in terms of frustration with the royal family. So I, I don't think the Arab Spring is over. But then the honest question is, you know, so in the book, Morsi's there, and I'm saying the U.S. should um, be doing things to try to get, like, foreign direct investment in Egypt. I was in Tunisia. Mm -hmm. Young Tunisians want to work for Google. They say they don't want loans. They want foreign. They want American companies to invest in their country. They want jobs. They want to be part of the global community. My silly sort of shorthand is that, um, you know, Tunisians, you know, Jordanians, they, they, they don't want to be ruled by al-Qaeda, you know, gunmen that force them to pray five times a day, and they also don't want to be invaded by the United States or forced to create some American-style democracy. But they do want to be kind of modern and Muslim. They want to be, they want accountable government. They want individual rights. You saw that in Taksim Square. The, the Green Movement's uh, success in this most recent election 
in, uh, in, in Iran, and I even heard this a bit in, in Moscow, that there's these mo- new sort of urban middle classes around the world that want to be part of the global economy and the sort of, you know, the information society we live in today. So how can government sort of facilitate that? Tunisia, you can do it. There could be much more loan guarantees to get U.S. companies in there. Um, uh, Jordan as well, um, just trying to, to help uh, private sector growth. But just an anecdote about Egypt, um, the largest – so this is Morsi's ruling. It's September 2012, and the Hillary Clinton and the American Chamber of Commerce, not always friends, put together the largest American trade delegation in the Middle East ever. Boeing, Coca-Cola, um, uh, some energy companies, a lot of tourism, Marriott, you know. They bring this delegation in. They arrive September 10th. 2012 in Cairo. They meet with Morsi. He actually impressed them with his openness for foreign investment and that Egypt, Egypt's economy needs to reform and end subsidies and do some tough things, but, but to be part of the world economy. September 11, 2012, a viral, a video goes viral on the Internet, the famous, uh, the, the film um, Insulting the Prophet Muhammad. So on the second day the delegation is there, all these Fortune 500 executives, crowds of Egyptians are storming the walls of the American embassy in Cairo. Uh, and then that night, Chris Stevens is killed in, uh, in Libya. So not a single company, of course, makes a major long-term invest, new long-term investment in Egypt after that. So there is a limit to sort of what we can do. I mean, if, if, if the Egyptians can't, you know, compromise and create a kind of stable political situation and we can't dictate that you know either you know I you know you I guess you have to sort of throw your hands up in the air um last thing I'm sorry it's a long answer Ryan Crocker the Mm -hmm. former U.S. ambassador and um there's other um American ambassadors who've served for a long time in the Middle East you know I asked them about disengagement and um there's this thing called expeditionary diplomacy where you're going in and, and launching all these programs and all this stuff. And there's some old-school diplomats that say this idea of trying to influence events is silly. Um, we should be training every young State Department. I don't know if anyone's going to go work there. Uh, young State Department officers to be the next George Kennan and just write great analysis, but don't get out there and fund women's groups or train you know human rights groups or try to fund democracy. I like Crocker's approach. He, he says we've got to be in every country across the Middle East. We have to lose diplomats, that Libya is going to happen again. And, and it's unfortunate, but it's also – and I had a lot of diplomats say to me in Afghanistan they felt guilty seeing all these young American soldiers you know, lose their lives and their limbs, and yet civilians couldn't take any risks to get out and understand what's happening in these countries. So most uh, diplomats I spoke – said their biggest fear post-Benghazi was that they wouldn't be able to get out into the field Mm -hmm. and that they should be in the Middle East more than ever, showing another side of the United States, not just soldiers. Crocker says you know the situation on the ground. You do a really tough, uh, honest assessment of what issues in these countries really matter strategically to the United States. You know, does it really matter if, you know, some political dispute about this or that? You then do a really tough, hard-nosed assessment of, how can we shape that event? Can we influence that event? You know, what tools would do that? Dipl- diplomacy, you know, aid, security force training. And then in those very few cases where it matters to the U.S. and where you can make a difference, you engage. Mm-hmm. 
intensely. And that's their view of how we should move forward. And, and absolutely, you know, no, virtually no military force only has a very much a last resort, but engage in every other way. Um, this notebook, I got a, something called Makers, which was um, a NPR, a big um, thing about the, the history of feminism that ran on public broadcast. And I saw this little quote from Madeleine Albright, because there's a quote on every page, which, which said basically, you know, when she, when, when, uh, she was first um, proposed as Secretary of State, a lot of people said other countries won't deal with a woman. Now, you have been involved in American diplomacy through, through this reign of women Secretary of State. And now I'd bring it up in terms of uh, any women who want to go into the diplomatic corps. Um, isn't it still true in some countries that, that you will be less effective as a woman at any at various levels of diplomacy? Is, it what, is this why we had some special male envoys to uh, Pakistan? And um, how have you perceived, and then the whole issue of the woman uh, ambassador in Egypt who, who took a lot of uh, incoming. Um, how do you perceive this, the state of whether women can operate in the world diplomatically now, um, given you know, some, of the, some of the places we have to operate? Some Russian observers uh, said that uh, they thought that Hillary Clinton was tougher than John Kerry, because <laughs> um, dealing with Lavrov is not, is mm -hmm. not easy. Um, I think it's an issue. Um, I saw it with journalists that you know, operate in the Middle East um, at best. Um, well, let me just say, I think that the U.S. seems to be following a policy of not letting that impact things. Ann Patterson, who was the ambassador in Egypt, was in Pakistan before that. And um, uh, uh, the current U.S. ambassador, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember her name, to Libya is actually a woman as well. So some people even question why, we're ha why we have so many female ambassadors in, these, in the Middle East, which I think is a ridiculous mm -hmm. thing, but they've sort of that's clearly the policy that the U.S. seems to have been following. Um, I, I think they're, I mean, I, you know, I mentioned Angela, <coughs> Angela Merkel or something, but I, <laughs> it's an issue. Um, anyway, an honest thing, on, on the best case scenario is what I saw in sort of Afghanistan and Pakistan was that Western female journalists were almost considered a third gender. They were different than local women, that there was this respect, there were certain things they could do. Men would talk to them very, very differently, interact with them very differently than they would um, a local woman. But then, you know, the honest other terrible side of this is, you know, the sexual assaults in Egypt and other countries. Um, many of my female colleagues were being groped and not telling me about it. And it was sort of a secret, um, you know, until these, these terrible attacks in Egypt. So it's, uh, it's a huge issue, and it's, it's um, limiting in some ways, but clearly some women have succeeded in, in what they're doing as well. Right here. I saw an interview of Senator Obama when he was a brand new senator and I gained some insight as to how he sometimes works with others to get, get things done. He said, he was asked, can you get anything done as a new senator? And he said, well, I think if you engage people behind the scenes and give them credit, you can get things done. Could it be he's applying that methodology with Russia and Putin and just very happy that Russia is doing that, that Putin's doing what he's doing? to get the chemical weapons out doing a job for him, in other words, even though he may be looking bad himself, it's getting done. 
Um, he could be. I mean, I um, people that have worked with Obama really defend him, and, and they they say it's not true that he's detached. Um, in the debate prep, Obama said that he regretted not going to Israel in his first term, which was an issue that you know um, Romney was beating him over the head with. And Kerry insists that um, you know this Obama going then he obviously wins re-election, and then he makes the trip to Israel um, uh, in the spring. And then even this whole idea of, of trying to revive the peace talks actually came from Obama himself, that he really wanted to try this in his second term, and that there was a sense that there was a window to try to revive the talks again before the U.N. General Assembly this, uh, this September. So maybe, you know, um, it's this whole, I don't know Obama that well, but that's the, is he working hard behind the scenes or aloof? I was thinking about the chemical weapons well, I think that – so the chemical weapons deal is just a great deal. I mean, it was like a gift from heaven because it allowed them to say, we're going to remove these chemical weapons, which the Russians and the U.S. don't want falling in the hands of jihadists. It's a, it's a step uh, forward. And, you know, and then Obama, again, it's, you know, we're not going to stop the killing in Syria. We're going to stop the use of chemical weapons. It's just like the shift from, you know, Assad must go to Assad's chemical weapons must go. Um, first. You know, it's it's uh, – I mean, I think that's it's a good deal, and they should be pursuing it. Dorothy. But it's not going to end the conflict. Dorothy and then Mary. I want to go back to the women thing. The first The infamous uh, uh, where he goes to Nantucket and goes out on his yacht uh, during the Egyptian coup. Apparently, I mean, the, his aide said that he was actually taking his grandson out. He was what? He was actually taking his grandson out on the yacht. But then, and then it's literally 24 hours later that that uh, his Teresa has the seizure, which is a full-blown, terrifying diplomatic security people who are sort of the Secret Service for the Secretary of State were there to help her with first aid, but it was a really 
scary situation. If, if you're going to do a Steve Jobs type biography, <laughs> does America want to know more about John Kerry? Or? <laughs> 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 let's 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 do another Steve Massachusetts Jobs biography. Massachusetts bestseller. Okay. <laughs> uh, Marion, last question because we're running out of time. So. Egyptian military's economic interests have played a role in their return to, uh, to power and the prospects for uh, success of the economy. Um, I think it played a huge interest, and thank you for asking that. Um, the Egyptian military, the Pakistani military, uh, the Burmese military, it used to be the Turkish military um, and the Brazilian military all had these huge um, factories and farms and companies that they would operate and make money off of. So that's clearly what the Egyptian military is, is preserving is its position and its, its economic perks. And this is what's happened in Pakistan and why the Pakistani military is happy to have kind of continuing chaos there and the threat of India so they can be the guardians of the nation who also do quite well uh, financially. And I think that's a dead end for Egypt economically. Having these huge military sectors in these economies, they're never going to be able to kind of catch up with the rest of the world. David Rode, I want to thank you very much for a terrific. <laughs>